This is a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. Hello and welcome to Good Things on The Bigger Picture with me, Lim Su An. Dr. Murali Tarun Munisami is one of three people recently awarded the Best CEO Award by the Union for International Cancer Control, which is the largest global non-governmental cancer organisation. Now, a familiar name in the medical field in Malaysia when it comes to cancer care and support, Dr. Murali is currently the Managing Director for the National Cancer Society of Malaysia, spearheading various programmes and initiatives to improve cancer care and support as well as accessibility to those services among Malaysians. So he joins me on the show today to share more about his career as well as the work that he and his team have been doing in NCSM. Thank you so much for joining me today, Dr. Morelli. Swen, always a pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. And I must first congratulate you on your uh, on the recent award. Oh, thank you so much. And of course, it's a very uh, kind of a special moment for us, uh, for Malaysia. Uh, as uh, as you know, the UICC is an, is an organization which comprises about uh, more than 1,200 different member organizations across about 170 over countries. So for us, uh, for NCSM to be selected, mm-hmm. uh, and it's a competitive uh, kind of selection to win the prize. It's something very, it's a moment of pride for all of us in Malaysia. And of course, uh, uh, for me, it's it's uh, it's an award for all the tireless work that our colleagues do at, at the society, as well as our volunteers all throughout the country. Mm. And maybe for those who are unfamiliar with um, the work that NCSM does, could you share a bit about what, um, what NCSM uh, does here in Malaysia? Right, lovely. So the National Cancer Society of Malaysia is uh, spread out across many different states in Malaysia. We do work across three big pillars, educate, care and support. In educate, we work with communities, schools, um, uh, universities and healthcare professionals to provide them with education at the community level, awareness programs, uh, specialized kind of training for healthcare professionals to better deal with cancer. Um, and uh, in care, we actually go out to do community screening for cancer uh, all across the country. We've got mobile hospitals that we use to actually go out into small communities to screen for cancer, pick it up early and, and get those people into the treatment that they need. We also do a lot of treatment and diagnostic centers to detect cancer, lower the costs of uh, screening for cancer. We run mammogram machines, kept. Uh, CT scans, PET scans all over, uh, working together with, of course, many different partners. Mm-hmm. And uh, in in kind of uh, the support area, we do a lot of things that we can um, do to help cancer patients go on their cancer journey. For example, for people coming from out of state, we provide halfway homes so that they can stay and uh, get treatment, can remove their financial costs. We help with psychosocial support. We provide psychologists, dietitians, counsellors in different hospitals and as well as through our own uh, toll-free line in in, uh, every single language that you can think of in Malaysia. So these are some of the things that we do to kind of help Malaysians uh, fight cancer in every, every different aspect of the disease. Now, when I was reading up about this um, recent award that was given out by the UICC, it was quite interesting because this year they gave it out to three people. You were one of three finalists. Um, I should also mention there was uh, Diana Sarfati from New Zealand. There was Hannah Charchwip from Lebanon. And then, of course, yourself representing Malaysia. Um, they also mentioned that, you know, this year's award acknowledges 
individuals who demonstrated exemplary leadership in managing a cancer control organization, particularly in the past couple of years um, or three of the pandemic. What has it been like for NCSM during the pandemic? You know, how have you sort of pivoted the work that the society does throughout the three years of the COVID-19 pandemic? So, um, very, very interesting because, um, as you know, COVID is not a non-communicable disease. It's an infectious disease. And largely when the pandemic started, a lot of organisations, and I feel this may have been some uh, kind of, in, of course, in, in hindsight now, these organisations would have also thought about mm, maybe we, we didn't go down the right path on this one. Mm -hmm. So they were like, many organisations took the decision to let's sit out COVID. Okay, it's not our forte. Mm -hmm. It's not the, our area of work. And uh, let's wait until COVID is resolved. And then, you know, uh, we'll come back to do what we do or we'll continue doing what we do, but just in a, in a, in a kind of uh, maybe muted manner mm. due to COVID. Now, we took a very different approach. And I'll tell you it actually in, within one sentence. So if everyone dies from COVID, you know, there's not going to be much left for cancer. Okay, and cancer patients will get COVID too. In fact, later we, as, as uh, research began coming out very quickly, we found that, that cancer patients were much more exposed to COVID. They had higher risk and when mm -hmm. they get COVID, they get worse COVID. So for us, it became then a matter of we needed to kind of get into the fray to also fight COVID on the front lines so that we could protect our, our own kind of uh, patients, the people that we work with uh, in, in terms of the cancer community. So, and of course, continue providing the services that we provided to ensure that people with cancer were not being left behind during COVID. So that's the kind of philosophy that we took very early on. Uh, in fact, since the very first lockdown. So one of the first things at that time that came up was uh, that uh, I remember during, seems like ancient history now. It does, uh, in 2020. Yeah, yeah. so uh, at, the, at the first lockdown, we figured out that uh, due to the lockdowns, patients couldn't travel. Mm. For they were being stopped at roadblocks, people were being sent back, people couldn't go for chemo, radio and all this. That's right. So one of the first things that we did at that time was one, advocate to the then Prime Minister uh, and we actually, uh, and, the, and the Home Minister who then very kindly, within about 24 hours, the Minister of Health uh, managed to actually lift that and give that allowance to, to cancer patients to travel for treatment and all that. But interestingly, it wasn't, uh, it took time for it to go down to the ground. That's right. So we actually deployed teams uh, to with with official vehicles so that they could ferry patients f uh, through roadblocks to uh, different appointments. We did a lot of like mitigation. We go and brief police, brief the military. So this this was originally how we we started uh, kind of moving into the COVID space. After that, uh, we noticed that a lot of our colleagues, uh, the people that we support, uh, the cancer community were having a lot of financial difficulties mm. due to COVID. So we started going into like providing uh, food, relief supplies, these kind of things to people with cancer who really were at very high risk if they came out into the into the public of them contracting COVID and dying from it. And uh, as and as as uh, so, we started opening up more halfway homes as well because mm -hmm. now transport became an issue, finance became an issue. It's still an issue, getting worse. Uh, so we, we we started opening up halfway homes uh, almost in in many different places to make sure that people who travelled now from far away to get treatment in KL or other big cities uh, would then have places to stay and the security and the safety of these homes as well, because we we would maintain them under medical kind of conditions so that they were at low risk. 
So we also continue to offset uh, help uh, in diagnostic services, even for the Ministry of Health. Mm -hmm. So where we converted many of our centres to become uh, re receiving centres. So because our areas are low, co low risk of COVID, mm -hmm. a lot of your hospitals were at high risk. Where if people went to them, they, were, they faced the risk of, of getting COVID uh, during the acute phases. So the, working with the Ministry of Health, we offset it. Uh, some of the diagnostics and all that to our centres because we didn't have uh, COVID patients coming in. But in this way, we could keep cancer services running, diagnostics and all that. So these were some of the things we did uh, in the early on phase of the disease. And then, of course, uh, vaccination yes. happened. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, and NCSM did spearhead quite a bit of that as well for cancer patients. Quite a bit, quite a bit. Um, and uh, funnily enough, um, we were very excited when the first round of vaccination came uh, for us, it meant that for cancer patients, treatment will get back on track. Mm. And and that, that was a very important uh, thing for us. We know globally now, uh, I think people, are, there's some studies that have come out now that in many countries and for Malaysia as well, I think very similar picture. You're looking at cancer, um, the kind of uh, impact on cancer to have actually put it back about five years or 10 years, you know. So we needed to get cancer back on track. Um, and very quickly we found that and again, this was from, we, we uh, I, I'm sorry, probably, probably forgot that we also took a lot of our services onto the online platforms, into e-platforms. Mm -hmm. um, social media, we started doing all our programs on, on social media and uh, a lot of more interactive kind of uh, options as well. So we get, started getting on one of our shows that we used to run weekly at that time. We started to get people calling in to say, hey, look, we aren't going to get vaccinated because if we go and queue in these big centres, uh, we, we're picking up COVID. The risk and is much higher the for them. Yeah. And of course, a lot of people are just bed bound. Um, they're very ill. They can't go out of the house. So at that time, we made a case again uh, directly uh, to the Prime Minister, the Minister of Health. And uh, the government kind of graciously at that time um, gave us the permission, of course, together with with uh, Protect Health under under the supervision of and of the Ministry of Health and Protect Health, they said, "Look, we'll give you all NGOs the permission to go out and do this house to house vaccination." Until I mean, at this point in time, of course, hopefully, I got a long more time to live. I think that was the most uh, intensive period of our lives. So, in total, we did ten states. Um, we're still doing, mm. uh, still ongoing the booster jabs and all that. Right. But we did more than one hundred and fifty over thousand doses. Um, and and uh, we, we pretty much uh, did not do only cancer. We did everybody else as well. So all these elderly, bed-bound, uh, terminally ill patients, ill patients, chronically ill, across 10 states in Malaysia. So And that is, I think, our greatest contribution to this country at, at, at this point in time. We've done many other things, but we like to take, uh, we like to take pride in having supported that. Hmm. It's really sort of reaching whoever that you can, right? Because at that point in time, and actually even now as well, vaccinations do help to protect these people. And like you said, Dr. Morelli, if we don't protect them from the immediate um, danger, the health risk, then we, there's no point thinking ahead to tackling something like cancer. And we saw with the recent um, statistics from the, uh, we saw from the recent um, report from the Department of Statistics that COVID had actually overtaken all other causes of death in Malaysia to become the first. So clearly it's still very much a serious concern here in Malaysia. Absolutely. And what has really changed is, uh, I, and again, I think uh, during that time in November, December, uh, largely because we, we finished vaccination in the end of August, September, mm -hmm. um, the country could get back on track. We resumed treatment services. People could go back to screening 
and really people got back into as much as they got back into the economic kind of sphere of activities and all that uh, which is really helpful for a lot of our patients as well they now could go back to earning a living but also uh, in enabled uh, cancer service to get back on track as quickly as they could and that that was really such a critical moment for us on the show with me today is Dr. Murali Tarun Munisami, Managing Director for the National Cancer Society of Malaysia, sharing about his work in the field of cancer care, as well as his recent Best CEO Award by the Union for International Cancer Control. We'll be back after a short break, so keep it here on Good Things, BFM 89.9. Welcome back to Good Things on The Bigger Picture with me, Lim Su Ann. Dr. Murali Tarun Munisami is one of three people recently awarded the Best CEO Award by the Union for International Cancer Control. And he joins me on the show today to share more about his career working in the field of cancer care, especially here in Malaysia. Now, before the break, Dr. Murali, um, you spoke about the work that NCSM is and has been doing in Malaysia. Now, if I could turn it more personal... Was medicine something that you always wanted to do? Um, so, um, yes and uh, no. So, in the sense that, um, as, as I probably shared, I originally uh, started off in, in the world of journalism, actually. So, I wrote and, uh, and uh, I'd like to actually, uh, how to say, thank this guy who later turned on to be a big mentor of mine, Peter Piot. Met him and interviewed him during an interview. And uh, Peter Piot was one of the people who discovered Ebola. Mm. And uh, we were supposed to have an hour interview, and we ended up talking for seven hours. Oh, wow. And at the end of it, uh, he had convinced me, like, look, if you genuinely want to, like, drive change in the world, one of the big areas that you could do it in was in health. And uh, so it's always been public health and, and medicine, mm. and, and that's where I suppose this, this road has taken me this far. But your experience in, in health, especially public health, I understand, has not just been in Malaysia. You've worked in Thailand before as well um, with the WHO. I guess what sort of, did you see sort of your career progression up until where you've come to um, work with NCSM in 2018? Um, absolutely. So I'd like to think it as uh, as uh, growth into the civil society space, mm-hmm. which... Um, Within the public health space, um, very often we, we are kind of in, 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 our, in our country. Public health still remains within the Ministry of Health largely. And, but public health is not a problem of, of the health ministry alone. It's really every single individual, every single family, every single community has a role to play. Mm-hmm. And in many countries, uh, this has already been taken up. In, in, even in the, across the Asian countries, Indonesia, Thailand, you can see that there's a very robust like civil society uh, presence mm-hmm. within like the health space. They help to deliver health in many ways uh, and mechanisms. So in our country, sometimes we've become very pampered in that sense, in the sense that uh, Malaysians, lah, and that is, we've become very dependent on the Ministry of Health. And one that's unfair, second is, is unrealistic. Mm-hmm. You know, So health is a problem that's everybody's problem. And, uh, and so like as much as we need to grow civil society, I find that uh, perhaps again it's very opportune this this kind of move uh, into the to the National Cancer Society, but I find it's very fulfilling, and we've been able to do so much to grow the civil society space in cancer, as well as in everything else in public health. So, for example, coming back to the vaccination thing, we had hundreds of volunteers, mm. N- many people who've never done a health-related thing in their lives stepped up. We we worked with fishermen, we worked with. Uh, 
motorcycle boys, you know, uh, kids in 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 small kampongs, uh, oil palm plantation punya people, people who have never ever like done any voluntary work in their lives, mm-hmm. step up to help um, the the efforts. And very interestingly, uh, I'm I'm very, I'm very excited to be able to share a statistic that more than 60% of them continue to volunteer for us oh, wow. long after that. So we still, as, as you know, we still have a lot of like screening and all that community level that we still do on the ground in all these small places. We continue working with them. And uh, very interestingly, we also worked with about, ooh, about 70, 80 different small NGOs, uh, people, again, who've got nothing to do with health altogether, educational NGOs, uh, people working with women's rights, mm. um, small like community NGOs who look, who look to like kind of put kids through school, uh, you know, uh, temples, uh, religious institutions, um, small surahs. So, and and these were people who have never been called on to do anything related to health in their lives. And uh, we all came together, you know, and, and for a lot of them, it was a waking moment to see that, hey, we also can, can do something in health, mm. you know. And that's what growing the civil society space is about because health really is something which transcends this, the four walls of the hospital or the clinic. It's about um, bringing it back to the community level, isn't it? Which I've seen a lot of doctors, a lot of um, NGOs and CSOs like yourself as well say that we can't just rely on secondary, tertiary um, healthcare infrastructures, but it's about bringing it back to the community level if you want to do better for the population. Absolutely. And uh, we, we um, I mean, and just now it's like Kutok English and a bit for being uh, kind of a bit blur about, about civil society work in health. But at the same time, we really have to praise Malaysians for being one of the strongest uh, communities in, in, in globally in terms mm-hmm. of coming together for the common cause of our people. We do it. We've seen it. I, I, and I think like it's, it's um, unfortunately uh, inopportune to bring this up. But um, if you remember last year around this time, you saw things like the Shah Alam floods and the Klang floods. And again, you saw people from all, all walks of life, people from different states, just like just leaving, just leaving their jobs and families behind, and just driving and and stepping up and helping. Mm. And so we have that very rich culture. Mm. And coming round back to cancer care, did mm. you see yourself zooming in so specifically into this area? Into cancer care? Yes. Uh, so uh, not really. My my a lot of my work previously was in infectious disease, mm-hmm. uh, but like I said, this was this was a call. Um, and uh, and uh, the moment I took up the calling, uh, I think it was it, it became very natural uh, because within the cancer space as well, mm-hmm. uh, it is so wide that it's almost uh, womb to tomb. I, I have patients. I, I mean, I still see and work with patients. I have patients from as young as a couple of months old until like uh, people are getting cancer at 90. Cancer affects everyone. Yeah, it does. It does. And not only them, it's the people around them as well, their friends, their family members. Mm. So if there's one, uh, I mean, of course, at the risk of sounding very blasé, if there's one disease that seems to be at every single level cancerously invading the, our entire society, societal fabric, it's, it's cancer. Mm. It's, if we look at the landscape of cancer in Malaysia, it's a huge burden in the country. I mean, I was um, looking at the past, the latest National Cancer Registry report, which was actually from 2016, 
2012 to 2016, that's the most recent one, um, the report saw an increase in 11.3% of cases compared to the previous report. Um, we also saw an increase in late-stage cancer. So clearly this is something that we still need to work on. Um, and we are seeing that sort of messaging from the Ministry of Health as well. Um, it goes without saying it's a huge burden on the population, on, on the patients and their families, but also on our healthcare system when we have all sorts of healthcare issues to deal with. We, we, we also see some cancers like respiratory and gastrointestinal ones making it to the top 10 of the causes of death um, among Malaysians. What do you think are the main challenges that we still face, Dr. Morelli, in tackling cancer in Malaysia? You know, is it diagnosis, treatment or accessibility? What, what have you seen in your line of work? Right. So, like, our biggest first problem is early diagnosis. Mm. We're failing at that, you know. So, like, and um, again, this is not something that we can entirely attribute to the medical fraternity, right? Um, early diagnosis is about people picking, realizing that something is wrong and getting it picked up early because mm. the early diagnosis difference is between life and death. So, you get diagnosed in late stage, uh, it really complicates every kind of treatment and you've just got much poorer likelihoods of making it through. So, and when it's picked up early, it's treatable. Now, and this is a combination of apathy. People just don't care. People are scared, mm. you know, uh, about picking up a diagnosis. And also uh, the challenges of getting to screening. For example, screening is covered by no insurance in this country. And uh, within, like, even the pockets of public hospitals and all that, um, if everyone is, like, filling up these public hospitals, they just, they just can't cope, you know. And then, uh, of course, knowledge in terms of both the community knowledge as a whole and, of course, um, together with the idea of let's go find any kind of alternative treatment, hoping that it won't be cancer. So these combined together, this really a big stumbling block. Once we get past that, then comes everything else. Mm. Because, of course, there's a lot of uh, kind of social uh, challenges pertaining to cancer. The job, the, the challenges in, in financing uh, treatment itself, the availability of treatment and, and you know, how like, saturated and difficult the public sector finds its, itself in being able to treat these hugely expensive disease. Um, the challenges onto the families, you know, a caregiver of a patient inevitably cannot work as well. Yes. You know, and so that the loss of two incomes rather than one income into a house. So, but if I was to say the lowest hanging fruit is actually if we pushed back early detection, and this is where our country is doing miserably compared to other countries. Everybody, so you see, because you live longer mm -hmm. and a lot more people are better educated now, uh, you know, you just pick up a lot more cancer. That's fine. But where we suck compared to other countries is because we're picking up cancer late. More than half our cancers are still detected late stage. This is where we need to turn back the clock. Mm, because if we can detect cancers early, then you can start looking at the other challenges down the line. But Correct. if you don't even pick it up, then the other challenges don't matter and at that point. what's interesting is the other challenges will actually reduce. So, for example, uh, if I pick you up in early stage, mm -hmm. you won't be sick as long. You don't cost as much. Yes. And and you can actually you will actually go back to being a productive member of the of, of of the community very quickly, so it reduces a lot of the other challenges down the line as well. 
a cancer diagnosis can be a very it, it, it is still a very terrifying thing for a lot of people you know I think for very long it's always been known as the big C it's yes a lot of people are sort of more aware about cancer are more aware that um, early diagnosis means better treatment better life expectancy and quality of life but it's still terrifying right like you said there's that fear um people find it difficult to talk about as well with their family. And then, of course, you have the impact on the family. It's overall a very difficult um, area to work in, I imagine. What have been some of the most difficult moments for you working in this area of cancer care? I think every day, it's the the most difficult thing is, like it or not, it's still losing losing someone that you're working with. The, the people that you've cared for, the people that you've worked with, um, unfortunately, this is—it's not like maternity. You have a happy outcome, mm-hmm. you know. The baby is born, you know, and it's—it's it's joyous news for everyone. This very, very often, especially with people who come to us and in in their last stages of disease, we know the outcome, and this is not really a, a very clinical relationship. A lot of the areas that we deal with are in complementary to what the physicians are doing. Mm-hmm. So we're looking at the patient from a totally different perspective. We care about the patient in terms of their social work. We work with their families. We work through their emotional issues, their physical issues. So all this creates a much stronger bond. And uh, when that bond breaks, it's very heartbreaking for us as well. So for us, uh, we come in starting with with that that idea that it's it might it's not going to end well in, for some of our patients. So that's a very difficult burden to bear uh, for me as much as it is to many of my colleagues. And uh, that, that's, that takes a very big emotional toll on us. So that, that really, that's always first and foremost the largest kind of difficulty. Sometimes it's small children. Mm. And that's really, really, because many of us, we have small children at home as well. There's always this like, we empathize, but... And, and that becomes very sad for us. So, um, but but beyond that, it's also sometimes the challenge of uh, navigating the system. Bureaucracy is a nightmare, mm-hmm. and uh, some at at some point, sometimes we feel relief. Thank God, we are the ones navigating through for the patient, not because, them doing it on their yeah, own. And and uh, because you think like, oh my God, I am getting so angry, frustrated, and everything. Imagine if I was sick. And having to navigate through this entire challenge of, like, for example, finding finding accommodation, finding somebody to pay for my care, even I mean, something as, as simple as getting five hundred different signatures uh, for you to wow. get uh, what's due to you in terms of a SOXO payment or you know any kind of insurance repayment. These these are real things that patients live through. So, and again, this is where our volunteers, our my colleagues, these are things that we do day to day. You know, and and is the frustration of having, but uh, but the relief as well. Thank God we're the ones doing it for them. Mm-hmm. Mm. And what has been, I guess, the most fulfilling part of it? Because you've been doing this for a while. And interestingly, like you mentioned earlier, Dr. Morelli, a lot of your volunteers that came on during the pandemic are also sticking with you, right? What keeps everyone going in this team? My success for us is every day. You know, uh, wh- what do I mean by that? Uh, of course, um, sometimes it's it's a funny success for us. Sometimes, uh, as much as we we in a very small remote village, like for example, yesterday, 
I have had teams which were in remote areas of Pahang, mm-hmm. you know, um, and uh, we pick up uh, early detection of like breast cancer. Also, they come home happy because like these would have been patients who sure patients like agit like upset, broken, you know, on one side, and we acknowledge that. I mean, sure, but for us, it is the success of what we're doing in the sense that look this first went out and saw like uh, an auntie who would have never got diagnosed and would have come to a hospital in stage 4 we're catching her in like stage 1 that is for us success every day that we do but also for us a, a lot of success is managing to send someone home I've got patients who have gone home to get their children to be able to see their children get married I've, I've seen We've managed to get patients through treatment. We've then gone home to get married. Mm. You know, so these are the is to give them the opportunity to go back to have to continue their lives. So that that is success for us, and we do it every day. We do it every day. We would do it every day, even if we had a choice. This would still be the choice we make. Has working in cancer care with cancer patients changed how you view the disease? For sure. So what's very different for me is uh, I came primarily as a clinician, mm-hmm. right? Um, of course, as a public health physician, like uh, my kind of thought process changes a bit, but we're still very medicalized. We looked at everything. We look at everything from the lens of uh, the kind of medical um, angle of things. And then subsequently, uh, what's very interesting is now... Um, we look at things very differently. Mm-hmm. For example, for me now, it's no longer about uh, about how many um, uh, kind of chemotherapy sessions I can squeeze into a day, uh, <laughs> you know, uh, about a patient. But now I'm more concerned about, sure, I, I've got uh, physicians, my colleagues in the Ministry of Health who, who will sort that out. I'm more concerned is uh, how fast the transport. Will they be able to make the appointment? Do we need to arrange some kind of childcare? We need to arrange uh, the patients who come for chemotherapy. What happens after that? How are they going to go home? Do they have somewhere to go home to? Mm-hmm. You know, these are the kind of uh, the things that we're more concerned with. Uh, you know, is there savings to get them past this month? Um, you know, that, so so it's a very different angle that they'll be looking at, and rightly so because we have to be the left hand to the right hand of the of the clinical work. You know, so that together, then we can hold the patient through. Because saving a patient's life isn't just about providing them with that necessary medical care, but ensuring that they can lead a quality life, a fulfilling life as well. Absolutely. Uh, but I also make the argument that, and, and increasingly a lot of our clinical colleagues um, see this as well, that, for example, an un, a, a patient who's not well emotionally, mm-hmm. not able to physically, is not going to be able to make treatment. You know, it's and it becomes increasingly our job to make sure that they are on that chair to see the doctor at that point in time, and more importantly, to take that advice home and make sure they go through the treatment. Hmm. I would think that that's actually a challenge for us, um, for the healthcare system here in Malaysia, because on the one hand, the public healthcare system is so overwhelmed, it's so overburdened, and then in the private healthcare system, a lot of people think of it as more profit making. Do you see it as a challenge? Do you see more clinicians sort of? taking that more empathetic perspective to looking at a patient as a human being rather than as a patient? Yes. And um, so, for sure, and, and you see this, um, I'm not saying that, 
look, even the way I went to school and was trained in medicine is very difficult, uh, very different than the way our younger colleagues are getting trained now. Mm -hmm. So now empathy, uh, patient-centric care, these are things that are becoming more and more important in the way we, that we deal with patients because we start to realize that I can be a really good doctor, but it doesn't matter if I'm not able to treat you. Mm. If you don't succeed, it's still a failure on me, you know. And you succeeding may have nothing to do with my skills as a doctor, but to do with all the other aspects which, which govern your life. I, can prescri I cannot prescribe treatment for how your husband deals with you. I cannot prescribe treatment on how your employer decides to not employ you or gives you stress at work, which allows you, which like doesn't uh, enable you to go for treatment. These are things that the medical kind of perspective cannot deal with, and mm -hmm. they shouldn't. Rightly so. It's not their it's not their job, and it's really a waste of resources. But there's someone else who needs to be able to deal with this, and this is where kind of civil society comes into the picture. It's the community looking back at the community, caring for the community. So I guess moving forward, Dr. Morali, you know, in your role as the in, in your role as managing director at NCSM, right? What do you want to see change for the better, or what do you want to change for the better when it comes to cancer care? So, like I said, um, it's about joint ownership. So, um, and and increasingly, we have to build an environment in which care of cancer, as well as all these other chronic diseases, is done together, hand in hand, with the community, together with uh, the clinicians, with, with the kind of medical uh, services. Because they can do up to a certain point, but the journey of the patient needs to be done holistically together. A lot of Malaysians want to help. Mm -hmm. Question is, not many of us know how to help. And so that's, that's one of the directional uh, strategies of the National Cancer Society as well. For example, we start now rolling out um, a, a program in which we're doing caregiving. Mm -hmm. So because, a, again, it's something which is uh, like even for mothers, I think for new mothers, there's even a, I don't think there's a cost that tells you like how to um, put out nappies, how to bathe your child. You know, you just get thrown into it blind and then you hope there's somebody at home who like so your auntie or grandmother or mother or somebody who's going to help you guide through the process, mm -hmm. right? Uh, there's, there's, there's no causes for this. So similarly, when you, when you get stricken with cancer, uh, somebody has to caregive, you know, and, and uh, what you do, no one knows. So even for that, we, we're rolling out something now. We, we're rolling out, uh, we've, we've pilot tested during the pandemic. We've done about five or six different sessions of training. Mm. And now we're rolling out a, a module on caregiving. Uh, that to the public so we hope to train more and more people to be able to care for their loved ones if the situation does arise but also um, hey go out and, and do this as a job for young people who have no other jobs the caregiving industry is yep. one that a lot yep. of people say we need to grow that we absolutely. can professionalize absolutely currently because you know you either bring in very expensive uh, like private nurses yes. from Filipino Filipino nurses or from any other countries or the thing is you uh, re-acclimatize your poor maid who's here for something else to totally suddenly become hospital level nurse uh, you know so either way it's not sustainable so this this then is, is, a, is an industry for Malaysians to come in so that's that's one area that, that we start working in a big manner we're, we're starting back return to work programs we're starting like um, we've grown and continue to grow huge amounts our psychosocial support so counseling clinical psychology dietetic support family counseling in order to help people come together to manage uh, people that they know who have cancer 
and the numbers continue. That's, that's almost all our lives are touched by cancer today. Hmm. And as a final message, Dr. Morelli, if I could ask you to put on your educator and your clinician hat for a bit, right? Would you have a, a, a takeaway message or advice for um, young doctors or other healthcare professionals who are interested in working in the uh, area of cancer? Sure. So um, I always, I'm, I'm a big advocate of, of training younger people to work in the larger cancer and non-communicable disease space. Uh, you know, so um, there's so many things to be done. Um, sometimes we fall down this this uh, idea that oh look, everyone's doing something else. the The space is so big that there's so much of uh, space for everyone to have something to do. So if you're someone young who's working in the healthcare space, or even someone who's not within the healthcare space who's thinking of doing uh, a bit of volunteering, or you have some idea that you think really can innovate and, and, and change the way we care for patients, mm -hmm. please, by all means, just reach out to any and every one of us. We're always there to try and help you, guide you. Um, I don't know, even employ you if it, <laughs> if it so means. But, but to help us all kind of um, move the detail just a bit more. And, and that's what all our struggle is. We continue working every day to push the needle just a bit more to do better for people with cancer. And on that note, thank you so much for joining me today, Dr. Murali. Thank you. Always a pleasure. That was Dr. Murali Tarun Munisami, Managing Director of the National Cancer Society of Malaysia and one of three recipients of this year's Best CEO Award by the Union for International Cancer Control. If you missed any part of today's show or any previous Good Things episodes, you can download the podcast on bfm.my or on the BFM app. I'm Lim Suan and this has been Good Things on BFM 89.9. You have been listening to a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. For more stories of the same kind, download the BFM app.